and welcome everyone to the fourth episode in the Institute for Global Dialogues podcast series, Strategic Di- uh, Dialogue. Uh, we're very happy to basically explore contemporary and per- pertinent issues relating to Africa's identity, role and positioning in global affairs, uh, including areas such as geopolitical dynamics and governance, foreign policy analysis and international diplomacy. Uh, my name is Sunusha Naidu. I'm a senior research associate fellow based with the Institute, and I'm joined by my colleague and co-host Faith Mabera, who is a senior researcher also based with the Institute in Pretoria. Uh, We are delighted today to have uh, Edwin Okuria, Executive Director of the One Campaign based in London, joining us for a discussion on the recent United Nations report on illicit financial flows from Africa. Uh, Edwin is, 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 has graciously decided to share his insights and thoughts and the impact that this report has for African development, and more importantly, what does this mean for Africa's relationship uh, and agency in global affairs. Before we begin, uh, let me just provide a brief background to Edwin's professional experience. Prior to joining the One Campaign in 2014, Edwin worked for the Development Impact Evaluation Unit of the World Bank as an impact evaluation and advocacy coordinator in the Nigerian office. Edwin holds two masters in development management from University of Turin, Italy, and geographical information systems from the University of Lagos, Nigeria. He has more than 19 years of experience working as a senior policy advisor and advocate on issues ranging from pro-poor policies and transparency in public health uh, and finance, agriculture, to food security, environment, and trade engaging policymakers and African civil society groups. Edwin, it's fantastic to have you on the podcast, and we're really, really happy that you're able to join us. Thank you very much, and thank you for having me, Sanusha and Faith. Absolutely, and I hope I've done justice with the short portfolio and also in terms of your advocacy work that you have done so tirelessly. Thank you. Yes, you have, you have. (laughs) Anyway, so let's get into it, Edwin. I mean, you know, you and I shared uh, an interesting platform on Al Jazeera recently uh, called Inside Story, and where we discussed the implications of this report and what does this mean uh, in terms of the the report findings, the report content, uh, and in terms of where does this leave Africa with regard to a number of issues. And I just wanted to get a sense in terms of what are some of the key takeaways that you uh, find that you that 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 basically piqued your interest from this report. Thank you, Sanusha. I think the first thing that I would say is that Africa is a net creditor to the world, and you know why? Why when the report came out at the time it came out during this pandemic, you know we are currently in a in a place where or we are currently at a moment where we are campaigning for debt relief for African countries because of the huge um, financial the liquidity crisis that African governments are facing because they are not able to respond the way uh, developed countries are responding in terms of stimulating or re-stimulating or recovering the economy. And when the report showed up, it was like, okay, so even while we are asking for debt relief, indeed, Africa is a net creditor to the world because we, are, we have many African countries who are heavily indebted who are currently, about seven of them are already categorized, even before the pandemic, to be 
at high risk of indebtedness. So when you see a report that showed that about $86 billion is leaving the continent annually, whereas by, by the analysis of UNECA and, and, and the African Union, um, the African countries will be needing about $114 billion to be able to cope with the pandemic in terms of response to um, um, the, the disease, the health, health and emergency response, as well as recovery. Then you have a, a, a continent that is losing $86 billion annually. You know, it just doesn't make sense. And so that was the first shocker for me, the first takeaway. The second one is that the extractive sector seemed to be, um, you know, the most direct um, um, ways of removing um of, of moving this uh, illicit uh, uh, finances, and and that what that brought to my mind again is that oh things haven't really really changed from the um, colonial history of of Africa where it is really pushing of uh, of raw materials and extractive uh, things from the extractive sector outside of the continent. You know things haven't really changed because these same sectors are the same are the sectors that are actually bleeding the continent dry. So these are the two key things that that. That, that from in my head that jumped at me to say that we are actually net creditors to the world and that the sectors where this, the, 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 uh, the illicit finance is, is flowing from is still the same from the beginning, from history, from colonial history, it's still the same sectors. So basically we need to begin to really think about how does this play out you know, going forward. Um, interesting points you, you raised there, um, Edwin, and I think... For me, generally looking at the report, as you've mentioned, so it's the question about for every U.S. dollar that comes into the into the continent, uh, essentially we end up losing um, about three dollars, which which, like you're saying, results in a, in, a, in in a very negative impact not only on the prospects for sustainable development, but also on the question of um, the implications for domestic. Uh, resource mobilization, the question about government uh, a dent in, in the in the government tax base, etc. But among this this issues, before we even get into the very very two issues around the the debate and the discourse on 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 IFFs in in an intergovernmental context, there's two issues that I think are important when when we begin to to touch base on this on this notion. So n- number one is the question of how just how political in nature this discourse of IFFs is. And number two, also which I find interesting in the report, is how it's anchored around a developmental approach. And this was something that um, um, the UN Conference on on Trade and Development report took uh, great pains to ensure that there's that very direct linkage to um, the sustainable development um, agenda. So in that context, yes, in that context, I think... Maybe if if you want to talk about um, just around the issues of definition, because the question of just the 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 issue around IFF's definition or the the various approaches taken by IFF's is not a trivial matter. Mm-hmm. It's yes. actually important in informing the debate. Yes. Okay. I think the first thing I would say that for me, from from all of the all of the definitions of IFF's, I think the biggest um, driver, the biggest change. Uh, or the biggest difference between different schools of thought is the issue of tax avoidance. And the question is whether people want to classify tax avoidance as illicit or whether they want to leave it as, um, so the, or, or differentiating between illicit and legal um, tax avoidance. And if you, if you, for me, that is the biggest difference. So the, basically, 
when you look at the history or the beginning of international tax system, talking from the McFarlane period that, that the report so clearly indicated, you know, where you, you, you determine source of, uh, uh, you know, the, um, where you determine the, um, the, the, the host, where, where is a country, uh, is, a, is a company located, whether, is a, whether the, the, the place where the country is producing the economic value or the place where the country is, head, the, the company is headquartered. You know, on the basis of that, how do you then begin to split the tax obligations to avoid double taxation? And then how companies begin to look for ways to, to, to um, you know, uh, go across or to, to um, beat such loopholes. That, that arrangement and the fact that we're not even currently agreeing in all, especially when you look at definitions coming from OECD countries and then definitions coming from African countries through the UNECA uh, Tabo report, you would see that the biggest difference is, is it okay to avoid taxes? That is what it comes down to. And so if you can have a way of avoiding tax, if there are loopholes for you to avoid taxes, should you exploit it because of the human nature or the selfish profit-driven nature of multinational corporations. And now, if you are able to say that there is space for, for legal tax avoidance, and then you then begin to minimize the impact or begin to minimize the categorization of what becomes illicit. And this is where we are. And so I, I really, really succumb to the, um, to the idea that from the report, it was clear that even when countries or even when other um, the, uh, other groups like the World Bank and 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 other groups um, from OECD definition that kind of underplays the role of tax avoidance, right? You come back at the end of the day to see that ultimately, when people lose their um, entitled wealth or, or, or tax or, or, or funds or revenues that is they're entitled to, there is nothing that is um, that is right about that. So that that is the illicit. In the, in the nature, that's what is illicit about it in terms of the source, in terms of crossing the borders, in terms of where, what it is used for. And this is where the, I think that conversation itself at the end of the day in that report shows that we finally converge to say that whenever people are deprived of their legally or of their uh, entitled revenues through any means, whether it is legal or illegal, it is illicit in nature. And that's where I thought uh, it, was, it was a good place for the report to land. I mean, that's a fascinating point around definition of tax avoidance, because I think uh, when we look at the G20, we look at all these so-called international initiatives in order to create some kind of um, a good governance agenda around the way transnational flows of capital take place. Again, we come back to this very distorted vision of who, what kind of responsibility there is, who is responsible, who should be providing this information, and so forth. And it, it just takes me back, Edwin, to a point you made earlier around the the one takeaway that you had, which was quite profound, and that is how all of this uh, in the report links back to the extractive industries. You know, it's almost as if that the the, the 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 network, the convoluted network around colonialism, imperialism and the way in which it was predicated on a political economy of extractive resources, again, is part and parcel of what drives this, uh, this, 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 this uh, vision within the report, but also the, the, the big, the big uh, uh, focus of the report in terms of how, where the money is coming from and where it is being um, exploited in terms of this. And I was just wondering, 
given that these resources that we are talking about play a critical role to the global value chains in in, in world markets, to the production Mm -hmm. of our iPhones, our iPads, and all of this high-tech technology and so forth. I mean, how much of this needs to also be extended in terms of your view to other sectors and industries that also is, is, is part of this network of the extractive industries and in the context of this, uh, the, 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 the other takeaway, and that is Africa becoming a net exporter of capital to the world. Okay, thanks, Anish. I think the, the, for me, there's, there was a major part of our conversation that I think was, um, it, wasn't, it wasn't well defined in the report. And for, there was just a mere mention of that part. And, and, and I thought that, that that didn't do justice. You know, there was a there was a quote from Mayaki who says colonialism was a system of illicit financial flows. I thought that re- the report should really emphasize that first of all, and the main reason is that all the infrastructures that were that was built in the time of colonialism or during colonialism was basically extractive in nature. Take get the get the 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 the. the Resources from the center bring it to the port, and it heads it heads out to to the rest to the colonial uh, territories. Now, mm-hmm. having said that, the, the the even even with the with the movement in terms of the semi or quasi transformation that we've seen around among African uh, countries, particularly getting into the service sector, especially because of electronic and the invention of technology, electronic um, transactions that happen. So it is a lot easier to um, you know, bringing capital, but that is not the the the, the institutional uh, transformation that should happen has not really happened. So let me let me try to to get that uh, explain that further. Mm-hmm. So it was extractive at first. All the institutions that were built around extractive sector was basically designed to make sure that the the country that is getting the the, the resources benefit the most. For many times, as you would know, many of the colonialists were actually trading companies, right? Who were representing the governments that they are coming from. So they were basically they were the ones taking the resources and trading by themselves in taking it out. So of course, the system is designed for themselves to make sure that they make the most of every resource they extract. Now, when we began to when we got independence and began to build and try to uh, get our things running ourselves, run our economies ourselves, now. Even when services were beginning to diversify from extractive sector to other sectors in manufacturing or even in services, the institutions that are responsible for this to to monitor this did not change. Mm -hmm. They were still generally in nature, the same old institutions that are with very little changes, that are very in, that don't have the capacity to determine this so-called technical component of of agreement on, on how to manage capital flows. So what do you see is that over many years, doing structural adjustment programs, as the report clearly out- outlined, uh, many African countries had to, you know, uh, what you call it, liberalize the capital flow sector so you can fully repatriate what you bring into the system with very little restrictions. And of course, so when the service sectors began to fully develop, like telecoms and banking and, and you know, all the other services that cross, that cross uh, uh, boundaries, you know, there is very little that the institutions that we have in, in, in Africa can do to restrict and make the most from capital gains right here. Mm-hmm. And all of these uh, um, transnational companies are still looking for the biggest loopholes they can see to ensure that they get the most out of the system. 
So my, my point is that they, they continue to hype the high-risk nature, nature of businesses in Africa, mm-hmm. right? Whether it's in banking or in finance or in telecoms, they talk about the high risk. And so when they get debts and come bring in here, they tell you we, 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 the investors here get it at very high uh, interest rates. And so when you, when you put it here, everything is taken back hook, line, and sinker. So um, I agree with you that beyond the extractive sector, in other sectors, you know, we're still experiencing the same uh, leakages. But I think the biggest uh, challenge is that our institutions have not transformed and not sophisticated enough to deal with the sophistication of many years of exploitation. And this is what I think, you know, should be the, I, should be the uh, focus of many African countries or African leaders and policymakers at this point. Interesting that you bring in that very, um, almost there's a blind spot there that needs a deeper analytical reflection, as you've said, um, Edwin. But I think also, I want to also touch on, on, on a direction or something that I think needs to be ventilated a bit more from the, from the report. It wasn't touched in detail in the report, but I gather that in navigating the political nature of the the IFF's uh, discourse, as I already alluded to, they, there's there's a very fine line to walk around the issue of destination of this illicit uh, financial flows. Because, mm-hmm. and here I'm alluding to a report that was released in 2018 by uh, Brookings, their Africa Growth Initiative uh, mm-hmm. program, that actually indicated that the majority of IFFs from Africa between 1980 and 2018 uh, have been hosted in, in, and here I'm giving the broader regions, Europe, Central Asia, uh, East Asia and the Pacific regions in that mm-hmm. order. Mm-hmm. And um, if you actually go into detail and they, they list the top six uh, can, uh, destinations by countries and also by as a percentage of trade, a very interesting picture begins to emerge. Mm-hmm. But having talked, having said the, uh, that about the polit- political and the politicized nature of this debate, mm-hmm. um, in the African context, obviously, uh, our key reference framework is the Mbeki, the high-level panel led by former President Mbeki um, that released a report in 2012. And then obviously this fed into the the uh, Financing for Development uh uh, conference that we had in, Addis in uh, 2015, yes, Addis Ababa, mm-hmm. and the Addis Ababa question is interesting in in the in the in the in the in the question of um, IFFs because uh, in that c- context we saw the G77 and China mm-hmm. really pushing for the establishment of an intergovernmental tax body based yeah. at the UN. But yeah. this was um, contested by, you know, the more developed nations. It's linked exactly. to your earlier point. But exactly. talk, talk to us a little bit mm-hmm. about not only this political nature and how we have to appreciate how also the solution um, lies in a political approach in a more um, shared responsibilities approach across the, the global north and the global south. Yeah, thank you very much. I, I think the first thing is that, yes, it is highly, highly political and and the point here is that what drives politics in terms of um, democracy, there's a huge correlation between open democracy and capitalism. And as such, um, when when you see that the people in power are also uh, the people that have money, right? Or the people in power are enabled by the people that are the same shareholders and owners of these uh, transnational corporations and multinational corporations. So the issue of tax and double taxation takes a political dimension because, again, people want to conserve their wealth, maximize profit, and minimize um, the cost 
of, of doing business. And so with all of that, that, with that being said, so you basically see the reason why it must take a political uh, coloration. And so even when there were attempts to say, you know what, let us come to a point where we can at least collectively define tax administration, define tax uh, standards in a way that does not deprive countries where the economic value for such companies are taking place. This is the biggest, this is the biggest uh, agenda. The agenda here is that when you produce things from a particular territory and the economic value there is where you do it, and then you do through this, uh, uh, you know, base erosion that, we, that, that, that the report clearly talked about, you shift the you shift huge cost here and say um, you push the cost to to another jurisdiction with low tax um, you know low tax regime that is of in fact there are countries that survive on that basis only and so it becomes a really touchy subject you know so when you want to do when you when you think about collective reforms reforms at the global agenda everybody is involved as you could see from the report. Even the developed countries are involved. The, the Panama leaks, i give you an example. When, when the Panama leaks happened, you saw the report talked about France recovering over almost 300 and something million euros, you know, from people who had hidden their wealth in, in, in um, uh, 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 secrecy jurisdictions, right? In tax havens, you know, they were able to retrieve much more money from their from their own uh, players themselves. And I saw, at the end of the day, you see that it does not benefit, uh, I mean, it, it, some people are benefiting, but the the glo the impact is still global, and so on the basis of that, when people see the value, talk about terrorism financing, there are there are in fact there are reasons. Talk about money laundering, terrorism financing, and how it is spreading across board. You will see that the whole globe is affected, and so when it comes to that point, people begin to uh, think about uh, how you have a global collaboration or a multilateral system that discusses this, but. The part that is really, uh, you know, terrible or awful in this whole conversation is that when it deprives, when the argument of if this is not, if this reform does not favor, uh, you know, developing countries or African countries, um, it deprives, uh, you know, uh, uh, development dollars. It deprives uh, domestic resource mobilization. You know, when people don't see it from that light, this is when it becomes a real problem. And that is why um, when we have these conversations and we say, um, okay, if we want to have an international tax system that allows for transparent country-by-country country reporting and all of that, that, that makes certain kinds of um, assistance in, in jurisdictions like in African countries where the capacity is very low to tax and to examine contracts uh, with multinational compression and extractive contracts, you know, how do we, do, how do we um, have that kind of cooperation? And people begin to fight it because they feel, oh, this is just going to compl complicate the, 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 the business environment. And when it does, it reduces profit. It reduces um, the uh, 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 what do you call it, the market, free market. And this, this, all these arguments have never held, um, you know, the way it should. But of course, when the powerless are not able to get their way, of course, the powerful as it is, it's in an imbalanced world. It's still a, it's still a world of um, where, where we are hoping, hoping that someday we can get to the point of convergence. But again, the summary of my, of my, 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 my take on this is that as African countries begin to learn. As we begin to see and and uh, you know um, converge in terms of an, a common African position, and we begin to like for instance the Africa Tax Administration the, that uh, um, that is that is a, a new initiative with the African Union. If that begins to fledge out, if if people begin to rely and share information at that level, then you begin to see more uh, um, more uh, uh, what is the collaboration 
then you can you can collectively you know have a stronger bargaining power but that has still not happened as much as it should and we are still experiencing the, uh, the these gaps in terms of the geopolitics of tax administrations so i i really hope that i, I mean i've rambled around it but the important thing here is that it is political in nature and because people or companies or corporations have direct access to power and they will influence that of course we are not sure that um, um the, the the outcome is not in the best place it should be right now I agree with you about about that, and and um, I think you've highlighted um, quite sufficiently on on just what what it means to navigate that very political aspect of it. But I want to circle back to um, because you're in the business of looking for solutions mm-hmm. or, or offering potential solutions. I think it's interesting this um, context that's now being configured around the SDG agenda, the the developmental mm-hmm. approach, because. Yeah. An emphasis on the developmental approach means that we get a, bra- a better uh, understanding or, or we create um, an avenue there for deliberation around uh, the impact and, and the kind of um, sort of far-reaching implications it has in terms mm-hmm. of um, which flows are the most damaging, for instance, and mm-hmm. which ones can be controlled uh, using which technical solution. So I think the developmental approach offers that that yeah. that vantage point. Definitely. But having said that, something that you've said has also uh, made me just also want to point out the idea that, as you've mentioned, yes, there's there is now consensus that this is a shared problem that needs a shared solution. Hence, we see various global initiatives also trying to also work with the continental and the regional initiatives. But mm-hmm. these measures come across as being very uh, disparate, hence the need for a greater uh, policy coherence. But I think the question that I I'm really want to, to, to get at here is, do you see... Um, the chances of uh, a more African-driven um, approach that builds on the on the um, Beki panel, or has there been lagging? Has there been a loss of momentum since the Addis Ababa uh, discussion? Is there progress, or are we sort of just in a lull in terms of the discourse? On, uh, honestly, I don't think there has been a lull, but again, uh, it's just that these issues are quite complex and i don't know if it is if it is possible to say that um we have done i mean we haven't done enough that is for sure right but i'm not sure if um uh, i would say we haven't been working or i want to say we i mean talking about policymakers in africa i would i would, i think that it is more important to identify which initiatives are working and which countries are actually taking some proactive stand to block illicit financial flows. And as such, when you see the number of countries who are part of the Africa Tax uh, Forum, you know, and who are, you know, clamoring for a common position for all of that, for instance, you would see that it is not exactly, um, you know, it is not as encouraging as it should be. You would, you would imagine that getting revenues would be the biggest driver of or you know of any uh, um, any government, but the level of enthusiasm that we are seeing it looks like it is left for the technical people. The political momentum that should back that up, I don't think, has been strong enough. That is number one. But thinking about um, if we expect that people who are beneficiaries of the system as it is right now, 
if we expect that they will sit down and allow for these reforms to be meaningful enough, for the momentum to be meaningful enough to drive that kind of change we want to see, you know, we're actually deceiving ourselves. So since the Tabo Becker report came out and the, the amazing revelation of the level of loss that it, and the bleeding that is happening on the African continent, especially with the impact of that on Africa's uh, development in terms of access to domestic, you know, to be able to raise uh, revenues domestically, you know, you would expect that that is going to really catalyze some very serious conversations, you know? But of course, that hasn't gone as far as it should. And so we are at a place where um, there is need. Maybe this report that came out again is going to re-engineer some interest at a level where, um, you know, um, steps will be taken to, 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 do what, to do what they have to do. But I must tell you that we are dealing with a very... We are dealing with a complex, people's food, people's wealth are actually at stake. So if you either deal with this decisively, it's going to affect a lot of people, powerful people, powerful multinationals. And this is where the challenge is. So, um, yeah, it requires a lot more than just docile release of reports, but, you know, active political uh, uh, decision and, and, and participation. Thanks, Edwin. I, I think that's a very important point to raise in terms of how much of enthusiasm exists in Africa to go forward. And and I'll be curious to hear your views on those countries that are being more active and proactive with regard to the kinds of um, processes that they're implementing to curb the uh, flows of illicit transaction um, capital. And also, I think, uh, how how are they doing it? And and who are these countries? Because I think, in a way... um, we, we are entering a, a, a very uh, important phase for Agenda 2030, but we're also entering a point where we don't want this image of Africa to continuously be seen as one that needs to constantly play to a narrative that has been set outside of the continent, but also perpetuated by, by those powerful networks you spoke about and how they use those narratives for whatever interest that they, a vested interest that they may have. And I think just looking at the way in which uh, this 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 kind of report may categ- may crystallize and maybe re-engineer, as you say, uh, uh, a renewed Im- impetuous towards the Tabo Mbeki report, but also in terms of making the 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 AU more front and center in coordinating these efforts around uh, these different spaces, would also give some kind of traction to how these networks operate. And I think I'm thinking about this in a very simple manner. In, in, given the complexity of, this, of these networks, given the way that they operate, and you know, they, for me, they operate as a, as a kind of Illuminati of sorts and the way that they, they, they you know the way that they set up their, their, their bases and how they actually think about uh, the sophisticated ways in which they can actually transact illicitly. I mean, it takes a lot of thought. And, and the way that they use that mm-hmm. to compromise the domestic mobilization of resources for, uh, for, for, for those that really need the, the SDGs or need uh, basic services like health, uh, water, sanitation, just very basic socioeconomic infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And it would be interesting yeah. to, to, to maybe start off with having a very, as, as a complement to this and just some of your thoughts around this in terms of the image that we need to start thinking about and divesting the world off about Africa, uh, constantly around this idea that 
uh, Africa is 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 in a state of constant indebtedness, and we see this happening now with this hmm. whole trade or uh, with this whole geopolitical tension between the U.S. and China, saying that Africa is being re-indebted. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see that there's this begging bowl scenario, but also we have to look at those networks mm-hmm. and how do we how do we start naming and shaming some of these people uh, very much like how we are struggling or we are trying to deal with corruption in South Africa where I think for a, for a, for, for, for mm-hmm. a beginning we need to start doing it at our community-based levels. So just some of your thoughts around those yeah. intersected issues. Okay, let me, let me quickly um, say again, um, that it is not exactly an easy road, Okay. When we're not talking of companies that started yesterday. We're not talking of this and this and this is not an issue. And this is the reason why kind of it looks like I'm hung up on the colonial legacy that this, you know, that the colonial history or the colonial roots that this stem from. So when you've done business for 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years, there is a likelihood that you have perfected your game, right? And then when you have administrators or, or policymakers in the African continent that come in after three years, four years, um, after four years, five years, another time, another government is in. These people have, when I use people, I mean corporations have perfected the way they interact with different administrations to make sure that their interest is kept. And it is not wrong. Everybody should, should fight for their own interest. The question here now is, to what extent are we able to really change the narratives by reforming ourselves? So, and, 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 I, and I mean this. With a few companies, first of all, just post-independence, there was a lot of movement around nationalization of industries, right? And of course, at the end of the day, even when it was nationalized, the infrastructure and the system of trade was still very much take resources from here and send it to Europe or the rest of the world, right? Now, when that was going on with political elites capture, it now became the, the major part of, of uh, capital flight was mainly direct theft, embezzling of public funds, you know, and stealing and then storing them up in tax havens and then in, in, in jurisdictions in Europe now and, and Americas. But my problem here is that as long as we continue to perpetuate and we're not ready to really become accountable as uh, you know, the leaders of our own continent. It becomes difficult to get externals or, or people that have interests or vested interests to cooperate with you. It is your language, it is your own body language that determines the extent to which external parties can cooperate with you or at least comply with whatever you said. And this is, for me, the, 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 is, is the challenge we have. We want to challenge these narratives, but of a truth, have we really, have we really, really reformed? Are we really ready? on the African continent to be accountable. Mm-hmm. This is the problem. And as long as we have such um, systems that are not transparent, we get governments get into contracts with um, multinationals and the citizens are not, they don't know what those details are. As long as we continue to have um, um, politicians frolic and have access, politically exposed persons have shares in these multinational companies. Mm-hmm. I don't know how you want to change that narrative. This is a problem. There's a problem of collusion here. So even if we have a development agenda and we want to blame the external parties as much as we want to do, we need to work on ourselves as African people in terms of our accountability, accountability to the citizens, to African citizens. And this is where we need, I think, 
is the first step. Because if you do not take care of yourself, if you if you've not if you are not honest with yourself, it is difficult to get external parties and and vested interests to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. That for me is the challenge and solution. So and, and I really will think that if we are advocating right now, as much as we want to get cooperation, we want to get people to comply, want to get them to see the wickedness of their continuous capital, uh, 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 you know, drain that they are they're, they're putting on the continent, we need on our own need to also tell ourselves the truth to say that, yes, are we ready to reform? Are we ready to be accountable? Mm-hmm. Are we ready to expose or be transparent in our interactions, in our transactions, in the contracts that we hold with these, with these uh, co- corporations? If we say there is no capacity in the government, folks, there is capacity in the citizenry. There are business people here who can evaluate a contract and see that this will not pay you. Nigeria is an example. Mm-hmm. We got into contract with, with multinational oil companies that deprived of over $6 billion annually, right? But because some people went into it was trans, it was opaque until an external party like Global uh, Integrity, mm-hmm. you know, reviewed the contract and revealed the level of, 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 of loss that is going to come from oil, oil mining. So these are the kind of questions we say, are we transparent? Are we ready? And that's my question that I think we should all be thinking about as, as, as a continent. Accountability is certainly important, um, Edwin. And already, if on the continent there's uh, shortcomings in our own um, initiatives, and here I'm referring to particularly stemming from the, the report uh, led by the Becky panel on the question of the the potential role of the African peer review mechanism, mm-hmm. that perhaps there should be uh, a question um, or a particular section that's dedicated particularly to IFFs in their, mm-hmm. in their um, country review process. Mm-hmm. But I'm also seeing a tendency where um, a lot of people are also seeing a potential role for the African free continental free trade area yeah. in also addressing some of those issues. So maybe just talk to to us about those two, the APRM and the and the continental free trade area. Thank you very much, uh, Faith. I think this these two. Let me let me start with the APRM. Honestly, when the initiative was started, it was such such a great idea that when the when your peers review you then they could definitely see the loopholes. They can tell it, give you honest feedback of how they perceive you're doing your, your, your governance and how, how you're performing economically, how you're performing in terms of governance and, and, and all of the parameters that, that that is supposed to be. Now, it is true that as part of that, I, I subscribe to say include systems to cobilicity and financial flow for, for review as well. And then let us begin to see where the loopholes are. What are the treaties that you've entered into that allows that enables this? What is the situation with your banking and financial regulation and your on your um, uh, you know uh, all of the, the the tools or the the policies that enables or, or allows for this? But I think more importantly, really, is the central con- central issue of transparency. I don't know if we've if we've seen African countries who have reformed themselves based on the report of the APRM. That is my. It's a question I want to ask, and it's an honest question to say. Policy changes have been initiated because of the feedback that came from the APRM mechanism. So, in essence, I'm saying that the APRM mechanism itself needs to go further. There needs to be a system that gets to the point where accountability to even reviews that have been made, you know, is is clear, is open, and citizens can access it. That, for me, is still a is still a, a deficiency in the system. And I and I hope that 
as they think about the reforms and they think about the way they move forward, this itself would help, uh, you know, deliver better dividend for us. But let me come to the ACFTA. That for me is an area of major interest. And the reason why is that when we look at the level of uh, commercial trade mispricing and misinvoicing that is involved in IFFs, you will see that it is this this is like the the biggest part of it and the only the reason here is that africa's trade with the rest of the world is inordinately it is it's um you know you you cannot compare it's like 10 times what we how we trade within ourselves so it's a lot easier i think if we trade within ourselves and we see the um and we are able to measure um, export-import data, the level of data that we share within the African continent, it is a lot easier to see how these resources are moving and the value they bring. But because we are trading mostly with external parties outside of Africa, we end up you know, having data that is so disorganized, so disoriented. You, you saw what the report said. You cannot even use ComTrade data for uh, uh, to, to do the balance analysis because sometimes the, in the report it showed that Zambia said they exported X amount of copper to Switzerland. Switzerland said they did not import a single thing from Zambia. Now, with that kind of system, you just begin to think about how then do we begin to look within the continent to get, um, to get our systems right. That is one. The other thing here is, in terms of trade financing, once Africans begin to trade within themselves and, they and the money circulates within the continent, it's a lot easier for spillovers to happen. But when the economy is totally dependent on external trade, that spillovers in terms of uh, uh, um, the, the, the growth effects of trade is seen only in developed countries and there's no spillover here except in remittances, then it becomes a problem. And so this is what we are trying to. We, it, 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 we are all advocating to say the ACFTA, the, the, the African Continental Free Trade Area, must work. It must work because it is one major way to curb, you know, um, uh, not just uh, the trading balance, but also to curb illicit financial flows because we can at least track each other. But again, let me put it this way: the big, huge level of informal trade within the African uh, some, uh, uh, continent has not been captured, and when this is not captured, because we are not contextually, our, our data capture system is not contextually uh, relevant for us, with huge informal trade between uh, landlocked, uh, sorry, contiguous countries, you're not able to capture the level of, of trade that is happening and capture the level of, um, of, of capital that is going across the borders. And so what you get is basically totally understated. And so if the AFCFTA works and contextually relevant data collection mechanisms that includes or incorporates the informal sector and, and, and men and women that work or trade across the border, that would give us a better picture of how goods and services are crossing, uh, are crossing the borders, but also how the capital is crossing. So in my thought, functioning of the ACFTA is one major pillar to really uh, uh, reduce IFFs. That's number one, with all of the measures that we put, put in place. Uh, the second one will be that when we um, have a, um, a a review of the APRM in a way that the the IFF's component that is that is reviewed actually gives you a picture that will lead to reforms and lead to response and not just I give you a report that shows up there and that's it you know that is when it actually makes sense or that's when it becomes meaningful I I just hope that those uh, those are my thoughts around that subject I I think the uh the role of the ACFTA, again, 
is critical because the other the other uh, issue with the APRM, Edwin, is that it's very technical. And apart from the fact that you're asking the country to review itself, um, it's also a, it's also linked to the to, to the point about how the data is collated and how that data is then presented and what do you want to achieve. Mm-hmm. So I think at some point when the review of the APRM happens, um, is there a possibility of having an external or, or a non-national uh, audit team that comes in and audits these these different spaces? Um, and, and perhaps the challenge is also with, with regard to the ACFTA is the question of rules of origin uh, and, and regional integration yes. blocks. Because I think the regional economic communities and how they set the, the, the tone for the regional trade agenda is critical in, in, in the context of making the system or the functioning of the ACFT with regard to intra-African trade and how cross-border trade takes place particularly not so much around the tariffs, but I think the other area that perhaps you could shed some light on is the question of non-tariff barriers in the context of African mm-hmm. trade. So just some of your thoughts on that in terms of the campaigns that you are advocating at, at the one campaign in terms of going forward. I mean, this report now uh, sets a very interesting tone and what are some of the, some of the work that will be informed by this report in going forward. Okay, so I will come in for, let me start from the last one, which is basically what, what in terms of transparency and accountability, um, that is one of the major pillar of our work as at, at one campaign, you know, on the continent. And basically, uh, beyond transparency and accountability from the point of view of um, resources that have been allocated to the sectors that affect the poorest people, we're also trying to see how we can create an ecosystem of accountability mm-hmm. where the governance systems in across Africa is accountable to its citizens. That for us, we think is the starting point because whether we get, um, whether we are allow or not, right. Um, we don't have, um, we don't have a choice. Mm-hmm. If people, if political class do not respect the position of the governed or the citizens, mm-hmm then we can all continually, you know, fight and it doesn't really get us, um, you know, where we want to go. So that is one area in terms of how do we improve this ecosystem of accountability. The other area is for resources that have been, that have been allocated for those, for the, for the taxable incomes mm-hmm. or for companies that are currently operating on the African continent. We've been pushing what we call the beneficial ownership register, you know, as a, as a campaign. And the reason why we are thinking of that or, or pushing for that is that when we know companies who are trading with Nigeria, who are working in Nigeria, who are exploiting resources in Nigeria, and we know the beneficial owners of those companies, it's a lot easier mm-hmm. to directly talk to them, to directly advocate, to directly call them out. Like you talked earlier about you know, naming and shaming. Mm-hmm. Naming and shaming is not even about countries because even though countries are led by political leaders, it is companies, they are companies that are actually operating on the continent. And so when we have a beneficial ownership register that is open, as openly accessible to the public, then civil society like us can do our work and call out those who, are the, who, are, who, who we believe are, are, are defrauding the citizens, you know, through bad contracts, through, through uh, dodgy tax regimes mm-hmm. and through tax heaven, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, pushing their profits or base, base erosion and profit, profit shifting that, that we observe. So there has to be a watchdog, but watchdog can only happen when you know who is involved, not just the company, but those who are directly involved. That is one area that we've been working on. And, and finally is the issue of transparency and accountability. We talk about if 
our systems of governance are not transparent. The policies we make, the contracts we enter are not transparent. Citizens don't have access and they cannot mine this data for themselves and take this job for themselves and then call uh, leaders to account, then it becomes difficult. So we've been talking about transparency and accountability. And the role of the African Union here is to set the norm. Mm -hmm. Whether it's the APRM or the Pan-African Parliament or, or, or which body that can come together to set the norm to say, Whatever contracts African government enter into must be in the public domain and it must be transparent, right? Remove all the technicality, bring it down to the simple because it's about people and, the, and, and their lives. That is another aspect that we've been, we've been trying to uh, make, uh, make a major push on. Now, when we come to, um, the, in terms of why, what are we, what are we going to be pushing for in terms of the ACFTA to make sure that it works because it, it, is, it, it can enable, uh, you know, many things. Mm -hmm. First of all is that all of the non-tariff barriers. Again, we've seen that unilateral closure of borders. It not it is not even about tariff right now. I just don't think. I I think that my uh, people are importing through these borders, right? Yeah. Uh, external third-party countries are bringing in goods and dumping them in my country through these neighboring African countries. Mm. As long as you have that, ACFTA cannot work. That's the truth. Yeah. And so we continue to advocate and call for a consistent rules-based approach, not when Africans are, are pursuing Africans out of African countries, not when Africans be, uh, uh, are discriminatory because goods are coming from fellow African countries. All of those non-tariff barriers, uh, you talk about the rules of origin, for instance, when we, when we see uh, that, okay, goods are manufactured or they, or, or they are they are they are they are already manufactured in china and then they show up in south africa yeah. they are packaged and then they move on to uh mozambique zambia and the whole of southern africa and then you want to say that good is made in south africa you know that is always going to be a problem mm. the case of tomatoes in west africa is still a case in point right now as long as the rules are not enforced are, are not in, uh, clear are not enhanced and are not being um uh, uh, you know side uh, what do you call it now People are not walking around the rules, finding the loopholes, mm -hmm. you know. As long as that system is not transparent enough and clear enough, you know, it will always be a struggle. So what we try to push for is that, can we at least agree that for third-party, external, non-African uh, 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 origins, goods that are coming from non-African origins, you know, this is the way we deal with them. Once that is taken care of, and the rules of origin, the, 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 the rules are are clear enough and we comply with that mm -hmm. so we're thinking about the trade observatory and that's why we really really appreciate the european union for 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 supporting the trade observatory to basically help monitor and see what are the trade disputes that are coming from are coming that are mainly resulting from unilateral policies from individual african countries that does not allow the acft objective to be realized how could we now then get civil society to begin to advocate for these barriers to be brought down those are the kind of areas that we are hoping that will help improve the system overall, and then we can get the uh, get the objectives of the ACFTA. Uh, thanks, thanks, um, Edwin. And I, I've picked up three things I think that I want to just double down on coming from from your your, your comments just now. Number one, as you've said, um, primarily is the question of accountability, and and like you've said, creating. Uh, that ecosystem of, of accountability and transparency. But I also gather that another another critical ingredient is political will. Mm -hmm. 
and the the question about assigning responsibility both within government and outside government and and also like you've you've rightly pointed out ultimately it's a question of um, that builds onto accountability is the question of citizen mobilization the role of civil mm-hmm. society the role of watchdogs the role of media etc outside uh, those outside government to also um, sustain that momentum as as we wrap up i think the last question that I, i would like to hear your 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 thoughts on um also is so so we all know we are all aware about how fintech has been such a raving success yes. in 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 africa right and mm-hmm. it's because of this whole question also of, of um indicators and how they've managed to plug a lot of the gaps uh in in in, in the sectors mm-hmm. but what do you see a potential role of technology and and here the question of of indicators in helping to combat um um iffs because in one sense it seems to me that there's a potential there of using regulation technology or regtech as they call it mm-hmm. to actually drive a very proactive approach um one that will help to plug some of the holes that maybe or errors that would fall from a, a dependence on a completely human element do you see a potential role of technology definitely that is the when we talk about when we talk about the issue of transparency it is that that issue of transparency is driven by the fact that we are in an era where um you know there is access to technology and technology is enabling that and that's the reason why you see the 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 um agenda of transparency is even thriving because of the role that tech can play fintech itself is one huge uh, place that would help you know clarify how capital flows right so um one of the biggest problem with with iffs that we've talked about earlier is the issue of the informal sector and how they've they because they move with cash they don't do technology those transfers so you cannot be monitored they cannot be uh, um uh, you cannot really categorize or or get their data but with fintech what you're able to what you see and it, and and uh, to to before I land on that point is to say that even within the context of the acfta we're talking about when payment platforms and payment systems that are pan african of african origin that is uh, interoperative in all african countries that is make it, that makes it uh, makes convertibility of currencies easy that is the first thing that we think will enable the acfta to work so tech has its major major role and then the uh, um, transactions can be flagged easily when they think it is going out of the norm for money laundering for instance when they think um one other thing that that tech can do for us is when people are under invoicing right when they are importing goods it is a lot easier to compare prices because it's available online and then you can see whether these goods are that you 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 put in when a a company um you know through this what you call arms length principle where a multinational company would treat subsidiary in other countries as as if it's a separate company right once you see them begin to over 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 invoice or under under price their goods or over price their goods there are tech technology has enabled citizens to easily compare you know what are other similar goods or similar uh uh product products that are in the same category and what what is the cost and then we can easily use that to call out companies who are trying to do this uh, um uh, you know price shifting so tech itself is a major enabler in all of this so if any country and african countries have not really uh, you know gotten to that point of of making it easily accessible of getting the infrastructure 
to allow tech enable businesses and transactions, then it is we that will lose. It is it is the African country that will lose in that sense. So yeah, in a nutshell, um, technology is really playing a major role right now. It can do a lot more and it can really enhance transparency of all these transactions. I think, Edwin, you've given us so much food for thought here in this brief uh, discussion that we could go on for hours talking about uh, what this report says, but how we can actually uh, position ourselves, not just as uh, governments, but also as think tanks, and the way that we were able to uh, also leverage the support for the kind of advocacy that we can take forward. And, and I'm reminded of mm-hmm. uh, of Dr. Tajin Abdul Rahim's works, Speak Truth to Power. Mm-hmm. And, 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 yes, and, and a course. lot of that reminds me of my days at Fahamu and how much of that kind of advocacy was not based on us trying to only just find, uh, do the research on our own, but to network the social justice campaigns, advocacy, and to, to start supporting each other, both in, not in, not in only in civil society, but as a track one, track two, and track three diplomacy. And I, and I really want to yeah. thank you for, for sharing your thoughts, for reigniting the fire, I think, for us in terms of uh, giving us a momentum of how passionate you are about the work you do, but also in terms of how passionate we can become about the role that we can play in these kinds of conversations. And I'm hoping that we can invite you back for another discussion um, on these issues, taking it further and percolating them in, 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 in the way that we can describe the different roles that can complement the work that we do both inside, outside, and with civil society and communities, a kind of, you know, going back to the, to, to the way that we envisioned uh, Pan-Africanism at the very beginning. So with that, thank you so much for this, this, this lovely one hour, almost an hour conversation. Uh, and we really appreciate your views and taking the time to share it with us. Thank you so much. It is my pleasure, and I'm always happy to join any conversation as long as it will help Africa come out of these doldrums. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you, Faith. Thank you so much, Edwin. Uh, I also want to thank the, our dear listeners who have joined us for this episode. We certainly welcome um, feedback, comments, and they can be redirected at, um, at us either through the IGD and also p- uh, pertinent to the conversation on IFF's please also feel free to reach out to Edwin in driving forward this very catalytic um, conversation and taking it further. Um, Thank you, everybody, and thank you for what has been an enjoyable episode.